There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is Michael Mazzola, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Have you ever looked up to the skies and seen something you can't explain? Or walked deep in the forest and sensed something watching you? Do you believe in an afterlife or a hidden veil that can communicate with the living? Then you need Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Download all issues completely free at shadowsmagazine.co.uk. Shadows of Your Mind, where your search for the answers begins. Hi folks, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. You've just heard a message from Shadows of Your Mind magazine, which has a new issue out right now, and that is Dave Partridge, one of my friends and colleagues now as part of UAP Media UK. There is a ton of great content in a completely free magazine, folks, so please make sure you download and check that out. It is uh, advertised on the Twitter feed as well. There's some great features this month, including one with myself, Ryan Sprague, Jay from Project Unity, Danny Silva, and Andreas freeman Stahl and a huge feature all on remote viewing as well. And speaking of remote viewing or resonance viewing, as we'll be discussing, my guest uh, is a PhD in sociology, an author, musician, resonance viewer, and a director, among many, many other things. I have Dr. Simeon Hine on the show. Sim, how are we today? Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me here today. How are you? I am awesome. Uh, thank you very much. Obviously, we had to reschedule this, but uh, I've had a ton of people getting in touch when I said I was going to be speaking to you on the show. So a lot of people really excited for this one. And e- even knowing you and listening to many of your interviews or watching your YouTube channel before, it was really hard for me to kind of pick some subjects to discuss and what exactly to discuss and found myself almost spoiled for choice. So there's a lot to get to, Sim. Um, and I want to start uh, learning a little bit about you as well. Um, there's so many topics, like I say, to discuss. To get right into it, you started your training in resonance viewing um, at the Farsight Institute in 1996. Is that correct? Uh, right, right. That's right. That's how I got started in it, uh, just after I'd finished graduate school. So. What's your story that led you to ending up at the Farsight Institute to study uh, resonance viewing? Well, I, um, I had uh, been in university teaching statistics as an assistant professor i decided to take a break from that and uh, i was in boulder colorado and i heard uh, someone named courtney brown on my local community radio station kgnu and uh, he was talking about what he called remote viewing and uh, he had written this book called cosmic voyage and uh, the things he said seemed so outlandish and so far-fetched you know, based on my academic training of what I thought could be real or not real, you know. And um, he talked about it, you know, the military having used it and that anybody could really do it and that he was teaching classes in it. And I really thought, 
either this has to be the biggest hoax or if it actually is real, it would be a big scientific breakthrough. So some part of me felt really curious and I went out and got the book in my local bookstore. I, I almost put the book back on the shelf and walked out. And just as I was walking out, I thought, you know, you really should just check the book out. So I went back, got the book and, uh, you know, read it. And there was a number at the back of the book and he described, you could come take his courses. I called this 800 number and he called back a few hours later and said, we have one space left in our class coming up. This is 1996. And I went and took the class uh, and you know, I was kind of like an open-minded skeptic. I mean, I was open to the idea that maybe people had abilities that I had never been told about, that most of us hadn't been told about, or uh, there was something was going to be discovered here. I was just really curious, and I was open to it being real or not real. But I did find within a couple of days, it was a week-long class, using these protocols, which had been developed by remote viewer Ingo Swan for Stanford Research uh, Institute, as it was called at the time. You know, they had a contract with the American intelligence agencies to develop a, kind of a tool for psychic espionage. And they, Ingo developed some of these protocols for them, and he called it CRV, Coordinate Remote Viewing. And um, it became known as that later on. And that's what we learned. And I, I found within a couple of days, it really... I was getting contact with these target pictures that you could not see ahead of time. The room was set up exactly the way Ingo had wanted them to be set up. It was a gray room with no windows, uh, cubicles facing the walls. And, and there was a monitor and a target. And I was really surprised after a couple of days to find that I was really describing some of these pictures very accurately. And so were the other people in the class. So that, that's a pretty cool thing to be studying because in my head I start to think of, you know, like the X-Men school and what walking in and um, you describe these nondescript rooms and I'm guessing that's to stop any sort of outside interferences, grey walls, cubicles, is, yeah. that, is that right? Yeah. Right. The, the, the main issue that comes up when people do remote viewing, you know, what I like to call resonant viewing, it's, it's more the kind of scientific model I think might be behind it. But the idea is that to lower the amount of noise, Voice. Uh, we all have this sort of subtle signal there for non-local perception. Most of the time, it's in the far background because we're all very busy people. And for the most part, we're pretty much concerned with what's in front of us. We need to be for survival reasons. But those non-local signals are there. Um, I'm sure many listeners have had the experience of just getting a thought or a feeling out of nowhere sometime in your life that turned out to be very accurate about a family member or a situation, something that you couldn't get physical information about, but you just had a gut feeling and it kind of broke through into your everyday ordinary routine and you paid attention. You made a phone call or something or took action and it turned out to be correct. That's sort of what it's like. And what can distract us from paying attention to those signals when we want to is that we have a lot of mental noise. So Ingo designed this protocol to sort of, uh, recognize what some of that mental noise is and reduce some of the distraction in your environment so that you didn't have anything in the local vicinity, you know, influencing you while you were doing a session. So he kind of created this protocol that included gray, you know, walled rooms. And uh, that's how it was set up. And I, it, it really, uh, I just could not see any reason why this would work, but somehow after about day two or three, 
uh, I noticed I was really getting some accuracy there with just ordinary, we're talking Andy, ordinary sort of targets at, at the beginning, at least, you know, Eiffel Tower, Mount Kilimanjaro, different scenes around the world of famous places and situations and things like that, uh, landmarks. And, and you'd really be surprised that it, it could, the target could have been anything. And there you were uh, describing something like the Eiffel Tower or uh, Cancun, Mexico, the resort area, things like that. And it's a really quite a shock to get that type of contact because you don't know how you did it. There's no rational explanation, at least uh, that we have right now. Uh, at the time, your mind can't understand how you did it, but there you, you, you can see on the paper that you did. And that's what's really very interesting and kind of shocking about it. That, yeah, that's really cool. Like, Did you have any sort of experiences beforehand that that led you to to having that interest in, you know, residence viewing or was it just something that kind of came about at the time? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I had been in graduate school for seven years and I went to school continuously before graduate school for a total of 27 years of school from kindergarten to PhD, which is a long time. And as everyone's familiar with, our educational system doesn't really emphasize these sorts of uh, phenomena, right? So you don't really know how to make sense of it when it happens to you. And I would have to say the only experience I had that did open me up to something being really different from our consensus reality, there are probably a couple things along the way, but the first one really was a UFO sighting with my mom in the Everglades in the 1970s. She was a bird watcher and she, you know, I had a brother too, but she decided she was going to take me down to the Everglades when I was like 10 or 11 or something like this to go see birds. And we had our binoculars and uh, I made a YouTube video about what happened uh, a couple months ago, but something came over and I thought it was the moon. It was so big and so bright. I thought, this is the moon, but why does it look so weird? It was uh, kind of a strange greenish color and it looked sort of ominous. And uh, I said, mom, look at the moon. And, and she said, sure, you know, the moon, the moon was over there on the horizon. It wasn't above us. The moon was out too, but it wasn't this thing. This thing was different. And uh, it had these structures on it, which we could see with our binoculars on the bottom, but it was also kind of gaseous looking and, ambiguous and it was also formed very strange and hard to make sense of what you were looking at anyway we went to a ranger talk a couple hours later all the lights went out and when the ranger convened you know in the national park system here they have these ranger talks anyone who's been to a national park you know as a kid or recently i'm sure they still do them they have these ranger talks you know they have these themes andy and they they get you get together at this pavilion and they talk about, you know, in the Everglades, they would have talked about the ecosystems there and, and the, the swamps and all this. And the first thing the ranger said, she said, did anyone see anything interesting today? <laughs> you know, like, you know, alligators or birds. And we said, we all, my mom and I, we both are Israelites. Yeah, we just saw a UFO. <laughs> and she said, oh, that's interesting. Did anyone else see anything interesting today? <laughs> right, yep. And anyway. We actually sat next to people who had also seen it. So we knew we weren't the only ones, right? But she didn't want to talk about it. We even went up afterwards. In any case, 
that happened to me really early on. And as a result of that UFO sighting, I realized there must be something else more going on than anyone was talking about. And I read books by John Keel, The Mothman Prophecies. And I eventually ended up with Timothy Good's book, Above Top Secret, somewhere along the line in mm-hmm. college. So that sighting probably opened me up to the idea that there were things that existed, you know, that you just didn't, uh, you hadn't been told about formally in your educational experience. So anyway, the remote viewing for me came at the tail end after graduate school, after being an assistant professor and everything. And it was a big shock to see something that my rational mind probably said at the time it did. It said this, there's no way this could work. You had, there's no way you could know about something you can't sense physically, but it worked. And that really opened it opened me up to a lot of other topics over the subsequent years and decades because, you know, once one of those bricks starts falling out of the wall of consensus reality, you know, one of those bricks comes out that, you know, ESP, I, I imagine, Andy, and I'm sure some of the listeners here would have thought uh, in the past, perhaps, that ESP was something that was real, but it was only for special people. That was my belief at the time when I took the class in 1996, that you had to be special. And when Ingo Swan developed this system with Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, uh, you know, Hal and Ingo worked really hard to develop it. And it was based on the idea that this isn't a special sort of ability, that everybody has it to some degree. They just don't know they have it. And with training, you can, you can get better at it. You can learn more. So it's, it's not something that's, you know, psychic or special or extra or para something, you know, paranormal. It's normal. It's just that you haven't been trained to pay attention to those signals, probably for the most part, unless you've had a lot of other types of training. So uh, to anyone who's been part of our educational system, it'd be quite a shock the first time you see yourself get good target contact like that. No, and that's a really good shout because one of your um, videos I watched recently, you made a really a, a good point that I thought on it that, especially with your background in, in numbers and, and that's what you studied, you would look at data and I, I'm probably going to get this horribly wrong, but the, the idea being that when you study something, you look at a sample of data and you tend to look at all the data that groups as the, the mean average, that right. this, this is what's most likely. But Every now and again, there's there's outliers and there may be just a number here that doesn't quite fit or, or a subject here that just gets ignored and cast away because it doesn't fit with the, what you're looking for or as, or as a result. But what you said was that actually maybe these outliers are the things we should be studying and we should be looking at. And that's that's your you know, your ESP, your RV, your UAPs. And that, that was a really interesting point because like you say, just because it's not part of the, the consensus and everyone knows and what we go with as part of our society and culture doesn't mean it's not worthy of further study or looking at. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to summarize what you just said. And that's exactly right. Uh, We've all been part of this system that has been focused on what we believe to be the mean average, you know, the grouping, the normal kind of groupings in the center from a bell curve distribution, right? Mm-hmm. It's just how our science has developed over a couple hundred years. And there are things that have knocked it out of place here and there. But in terms of ordinary reality, let me say macroscopic reality, let's just, we're not talking quantum microscopic phenomena. 
science has said that that quantum sort of phenomenon doesn't apply to the macro scale. So we're going to just use classical, you know, ordinary statistics. And that leads us to throw out using kind of our own prejudices and judgments to subjectively throw out data. I, I remember being told this in graduate school. You take the, the outliers and you know you can throw a few out. It's, it's okay. Everybody does it. But let's say you're throwing out the stuff that really matters. And uh, that's serious because that means our entire worldview could have been skewed for the past 100, 200 years in a direction of uh, a certain type of math and statistics that ignores a lot of reality, which would mean that our worldview right now is out of touch with reality from centuries of this sort of bureaucratic conditioning to look at just ordinary statistics, uh, typical statistics where you're using means and variances. But let's say there are no means or variances over the long run. Then what we're doing is literally pushing away a large chunk of reality. I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened over the past decades and uh, longer. And this is why our sense of reality is, you know, just to talk about this in a big sense, just for a second, it's, it's so it's so distorted from what reality really is. And this is where all these phenomena, why we are having such a challenge to fit them into our worldview, because conventional science has been very happy to say that they're outliers. Yeah, but I'd like to point out that COVID was an outlier too. Uh, There was a time in this country, in the US, I still remember President Trump saying it. There were only 22 cases and six deaths. This was only a half, when was this? Back in February, February? yeah, February that was, yeah. And this is not that long ago, like half a year ago, there were six deaths and 22 cases. And he said, listen, folks, you don't have to worry about it. It's just, uh, (laughs) it's just so unlikely you're going to get it. I watched this on the TV. It's so unlikely you're going to get it because so if that's an outlier, you're saying just a couple people got it, you know, and it came and, and we have this under control. We're confident we have this under control. Look what happened six months later. That's what happens when you use those ordinary statistics is you can't see the black swan events. You can't see things that can change rapidly. And if that's true, that would mean that a lot of these other phenomena that have been called paranormal aren't really paranormal. It's just we've kind of labeled them that way because they just don't fit within the worldview that we're comfortable with. But, you know, Andy and as everyone, you, you know, and everyone who's listening knows the world worldviews change. Worldviews do change and they change because there's data and there's information and events and subjects that won't go away because they're really there. And eventually the worldview has to catch up. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And that's why I've got this podcast uh, and speaking to people like yourself. Um, So going back to some of your first uh, remote viewing or resonance viewing experiences. Actually, before I even get to that, Sim, let's clear this up because a lot of people are going to be here is discussing remote viewing and resonance viewing. Now, this is something I know you've said on your website and your blog. There's there's not necessarily a difference. You just prefer the term resonance viewing. Do you just want to talk on that quickly as to why why you think yeah, the terms sure. are? Yeah, sure. I mean, the term remote viewing was created, according to my understanding, by Ingo Swan for 
You know, it was created for a government contract for intelligence agencies. It was created for the DIA and the CIA. And when you're in the grant business, you got to make what you're doing sound sexy so that the funders want to pay you, right? I mean, they're not going to fund something that sounds really boring. So you put X's in there and, you know, you make it really cool. I mean, this is what companies do, you know, when they want to get listed to be a company on the stock market or something, they put an X in there. And the way they did it with this is they called it remote viewing. So it sounded kind of ordinary enough and also kind of different at the same time. I mean, you could have thought it was almost like a satellite, satellite reconnaissance technique or something, right? Mm-hmm. I remember some guy in my office in Boulder when I first set up my remote viewing institute there, the Mount Baldy Institute in 1977. He said, hey, you're into remote viewing. Let's, let's have lunch. And so I'm going out to lunch and he thought I was into satellite reconnaissance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they called it that because, you know, look, you want to get the funding, you want the project to, you know, get off the ground. So you're not going to make it sound too strange. You're not going to call it psychic, you know, perception. You're going to call it something that sort of fits in the kind of bureaucratic parlance of the time. And they called it remote viewing. But the question is, uh, is it really remote? If it really works the way it seems to work, that you're here and you're getting information from what some appears to be over there, a non-local target, as we say, or it could be even in the future, past, you know. Well, then it can't be remote. So that's, and the reason is, Andy, was when people think about a remote viewing, then they think that they're actually going somewhere, they're projecting their astral body to the location and dropping in and some of the early military viewers actually thought that's what they were doing. They're kind of dropping into the target site, you know, like parachuting in all this. Well, look, whatever works for you works. I'm not saying that's a bad, uh, you know, sort of analogy. Uh, it's not a bad description, but is that in, t- in terms of physics, is that really what's going on? I, I don't think so. I think you're getting the information here, which would make the analogy more like a type of mental radio not saying it's an electromagnetic signal. I'm saying it's a little more like resonance, quantum resonance. Uh, The type of thing that Edgar Mitchell, you know, six man to walk on the moon, you know, UFO disclosure pioneer, uh, all around very fascinating, interesting, important person in our history. Uh, Edgar Mitchell talked about quantum resonance and quantum holography. I think it's something more like that. And that's why I prefer to call it resonant viewing rather than remote. Because when you call it remote, it kind of sets up a certain kind of way of looking at it. And I just, we just remembered that that name was given to it in kind of a bureaucratic setting, a funding setting and so forth at SRI. But I think in reality, it's not really remote or you wouldn't be getting information. That information is uh, there and you're receiving it. So it's more like more like a radio analogy which would mean kind of like tuning and frequency and resonance that's how that's how i look at it hopefully that clears that up for the listeners as we, as we go through the rest of the, the show um so you talked about and you touched on some of your first experiences when you were at the farsight institute where you would hit targets like eiffel tower cancun mexico do you remember any particular early profound experience with resonance viewing what what was your first kind of wow moment yeah, there were a couple. That's a good question because uh, I think the first one that really, you know, really shocked me was the target of Cancun, Mexico. It was a picture of the hotels and the beach and everything there in Cancun. I had never been there or seen pictures of it before, but uh, I was getting, you know, the water and the beaches, and then I got these hotels, and then I'm, in my mind, I'm kind of walking around in the building because you can 
give viewers movement exercises to have them move into structures and walk around and see, you know, see what they see. I mean, why not? So, uh, uh, I remember hearing people speaking Spanish and waiters and all this. And I drew this picture and it was this bay and these boats. And I thought I'm making this all up. That's what you think when you're on target, your conscious mind thinks you're making it all up because it didn't create the data. So it says this can't be right. But part of the training is to objectify whatever those thoughts are. The only rule is you got to write everything down during a session, every thought that you have. And it's got to go somewhere. Not saying, you know, you know, it's not all accurate, but you got to write it down. So, you know, those doubts are going to come into your mind and you just write them down on the side, you know, kind of don't believe this or think of making this up if you get those thoughts. Well, it turned out to be a very accurate drawing of the setting, the boats and the, where the buildings were. And that was really, I mean, you just think, how did I do that? Because you don't know how you did it. It comes from your subconscious mind your subconscious or your unconscious mind it's a different place than the conscious mind let's just put it that way and you're not really aware of how you got the information but it does work so that was one of them that cancun target and then there was another target that courtney gave us it was the destruction of the dinosaurs event you know 65 million years ago now again you got to keep in mind these are not double blind targets, which would be the most you know, scientific way to do it. They're blind targets. The monitor knows what the target is, but you don't. Uh, no one's told you ahead of time what the cue is. So on this destruction of the dark, uh, dinosaur target, I remember, you know, first I'm seeing all these dinosaurs or creatures in a swamp. I didn't know if they were dinosaurs, but they creatures in a swamp, sort of not like ordinary creatures like we're used to know. And then the thing I noticed was the smell. The air was so clean. It was like not air that you would smell nowadays. Uh, it was just extraordinarily clean. So I'm in my mind of wondering, where am I? And then uh, we were given a movement exercise to move past whatever the main event was that was the focus of the session. And all of a sudden, I just saw it turn into dust, you know, and gray, and the dark and everything. And I, again, I didn't know how to make sense of that. You just, you're trained in viewing to write everything down, describe, don't name. You're not trying to figure out what you're viewing. This is what people need to understand. You're not actively sitting there trying to figure out what your viewing target is. Your job is just to describe whatever information comes across the lattice there. And uh, you're supposed to just write it down and you make sense of it later and then you get the feedback you do a little post-session summary you get the feedback so it was pretty shocking to find out uh that it actually was the destruction of the dinosaurs you know that i had been viewing something 65 million years ago uh, apparently voice and there was, there was also one more target it was a japanese attack on pearl harbor i just remember seeing these things that i thought were bees at the horizon coming towards me and they made this very loud sound, which I thought is kind of loud for insects. And then they turned into planes. Now, I didn't get the rest of the destruction and everything, but it was just interesting that that's what the target was. And you see these things coming in, you know, in your mind's eye, and it, it becomes planes and, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So those are three sort of targets that were pretty surprising from the beginning. So that, that third one kind of adds to the question I was going to ask anyway. Yeah. Is it a scary experience, whether it's something you do now with, with kind of a few decades of of this behind you, or even the first time? Is there a fear there at all when you're, you're viewing these experiences? The, the, it's, it's a good question, and 
it's more like seeing a movie. Um, you can always walk out of the movie theater if it gets to be too much, right? You can end the session. I mean, mm-hmm. the structure here, the protocol is that the viewer is in charge of the session, not the monitor. So nobody's making you do anything you don't want to do. You are being given a blind target. You have to trust your monitor and the people setting up the viewing session. It's pretty, trust is really important in viewing because you're really going in there literally blind with no knowledge of the target. And uh, in, you know, in terms of your knowledge ahead of time, and you have to trust that the people are going to be, you know, giving you something worthwhile to look at. And if you do encounter something that feels kind of scary, as you put it, you can uh, end the session, but you don't have to because Andy, you're not really there. This is uh, the term for viewing when you feel that type of contact that feels very real is called bilocation. So, you know, just like you have a bicameral brain, you know, like a left and a right hemisphere, part of you is aware that you're sitting there in the, you know, in your chair, if that's how you're doing it. CRV is a written technique. It's not something you're doing lying down as other techniques uh, do. You're uh, writing and your eyes are open. So you're aware that you're sitting there writing, but uh, you're also perceiving something else. And, uh, you know, for the most part, it's, I would say it isn't a scary experience. The only time it becomes like that, it seems, is if you have a very non-ordinary experience during the viewing. Uh, there was um, a guy, I remember, in opening mind, I referred to him as Bob who felt like a ball of light came into the room when he was doing a session once it was an ET type session as we did a little later on in the training. And he was really alarmed by that. He actually, as a good viewer, he actually attempted to describe it because you're told during the session, describe whatever you perceive during the session. So this, he felt in the hotel we were in, in Atlanta, that a ball of light kind of drifted over the desk. And when he touched it, he felt like a electrical burning sensation. Now that's pretty uh, rare, um, but that's what he felt he experienced. And he was really shocked and disturbed by it. He, uh, I remember he was visibly upset after the session. Now that hasn't happened to me. I haven't experienced balls of light during the session, but there's really no guarantees. Once you start opening up the aperture, I mean, more things can come through than you're used to. But at the end of the day, it's a session, right? It's a viewing session. It's not an out-of-body experience, at least not CRV. I mean, this isn't the Monroe Institute or anything like that, which has its own protocols, which I know people have gone to and really enjoyed. But this is more uh, a different sort of technique where you're supposed to be, uh, and you're supposed to be present enough so you can write everything down. Right, because if you, if if you're too far out into the experience, you'll stop writing. Uh, it's not a technique where you have a tape recorder there and you're talking, you're writing. So uh, it's called coordinate remote viewing. Some people call it controlled remote viewing. <laughs> if that gives you any sort of hint about, you're supposed to have a degree of discipline over what's going on during the session, so that sure. you're still in control and the viewer. Uh, you do encounter sessions as a monitor where the viewer says, I don't want to view this anymore. I want to stop. It's brought up memories for them or something. 
this can happen with UFO ET type targets. I've seen it happen on several occasions where it brought up repressed memories of UFO or ET contact or something like that, that the person had not processed before and it all came flooding back during the session and they felt like they had to end it. And you, we can all understand that, right? Absolutely. But again, you, you end it when you want to end it and that, that's how it works, yeah. I was going to ask on that, have you ever seen anything yourself that afterwards you thought, I wish I hadn't or I, I didn't want to see that? Uh, yes. Uh, honestly, uh, there in Boulder at the time in the late 90s, there was a, a homicide near my building. And it was in the part of t- town where I felt like it was, you know, like this is my territory. I, I guess we all feel that way about our where we live, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's your street or something. If something happens like that, you're going to feel like, hey, I want to find out who did that. So I chose to view the uh, the actual murder remotely. Uh, some people do this to work with police. They call it a signed, uh, signed witness sort of protocol, um, where you will go back later to look at the crime scene and move around in time to get information about what happened, right? And... Um, it was a particularly sort of violent crime. And if you're not quite prepared for it, you're going to get a lot of information from the event. There's going to be a lot of violence. And it may not be something that you've encountered before. And that was something that I felt later I probably wouldn't want to do again. I, I did actually call the police with the information. And some of the attorneys in the building told me I shouldn't because they said, you know, wow, you could if you're too accurate that you could be a suspect, right? Think about it. If you identify the suspect, even um, they're going to want to know how you got that information and they don't know what remote viewing is because you called them, right? They didn't call you. So I learned from that experience. First of all, don't just volunteer information over the police like that. They need to want to have you involved. Otherwise they're going to think it's a little weird if you just call them up. (laughs) Yeah. I did call them up with the description. 10 years later, they did catch the guy who, uh, committed this murder um, and assault. And uh, they had DNA evidence. They didn't have the DNA techniques at the time to get information from the objects that were there. And uh, it turned out to be very accurate, the session, in terms of where he lived and everything. As I sort of traced it, you know, where he went and where did he live, all these things. Uh, I don't know if that's something I'd want to do again, but there are people that specialize in working with the police, solving crimes, things like that. Uh, Bevy Yeagers was a very well-known psychic who passed away a number of years ago. She had the U.S. Psy Squad in St. Louis. And I remember taking a couple seminars with her after the IRVA, International Remote Viewing Association, meetings in the Vegas area. I think I took two of her, you know, seminars. And she would tell us that that her group was about 80% successful in solving crimes. But she also said it's very difficult emotionally and so forth. Uh, because of what you're, you know, involved with. And I guess, you, you know, you can understand that. Um, so that's the sort of thing where you might think, you know, did I really want to do this? But of course, you're doing it for the better good. You want to prevent it from happening again. You want to catch the person who did it. So, uh, you know, there's just a trade-off there. And, there. and one more thing, Andy, I should mention, there are techniques for detoxing yourself after a viewing session. Pretty important thing to do. To separate out the uh, 
the vibes from the target scene and event from yourself so that, you know, you kind of let it go again oh, and don't carry it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That, that must be important. And thank you for sharing that as well. Cause that, that's a pretty profound experience. Has yeah. your perception of resonance viewing changed since your first experiences back in, in the mid nineties? Um, yeah. And I'll tell you why. Once you go down this path of learning RV, it opens doors to many new topics that you might not have expected you, you know, yourself to get involved with. Um, because you're viewing different sorts of phenomena and different sorts of things. And for a lot of people, remote viewing, resonant viewing is kind of like a gateway drug. It's the first thing that you try. I'm just saying that in a kind of a facetious way. Yeah it opens you up to something and you're saying, well, what else might be true that I wasn't told about in school or as a kid? That's what it did for me. What other phenomena might be out there that are actually uh, real that the public doesn't really know about. Right. And it's also because it's sort of RV attracts people that have worked in these areas, but might've had security clearances and they're, not talking about it to the public, but when they come to the RV class, they feel like they're in a milieu where they feel comfortable telling their stories to the other people who are there because perhaps the other people who've come to the RV class are as crazy (laughs) as they are to be open to these topics. I'm saying that in a kind of a fun way, right? So you encounter people that have a lot of credibility who've worked in different Uh, jobs perhaps for the government or in private industry where they've seen things and they know a lot behind the scenes about what's going on with these phenomena, but they've never really shared it with anyone else. So they begin to share it with you and other people in the class. And so you begin to be exposed to these other topics. And that's how it happened to me uh, with topics like UFOs and, you know, other phenomena, you know, ghosts and Bigfoot and things like this that you hear very credible stories from these people and they say, you know, I've never really told this to anyone before, but here we are at lunch during the RV class and they share a story and you're going, wow, you know, that's really something. And they happen to be someone who had a security clearance or something. They have credibility, right? And then you realize there are a lot of these people out there. There's a lot of witnesses out there who've never come forward because they're afraid for some reason to share their story, but around you and the RV group, they're not. So, so to answer your question, it just changes it in the sense that, one, you begin to be exposed to a lot of other phenomena from credible witnesses, and two, you begin to wonder, Andy, honestly, what in the world is the science behind how this works? How does information flow from somewhere over there to you without seeming to go through the intervening space? So you begin to question the larger sense of reality that we have, you know, scientifically, of what what sort of science would you need to explain how this works? So I think that's those are two ways that it, it never really stops, basically. Once you start going down this path and you see that you can do this, and uh, it's a sort of a normal thing to be able to view and get these sort of uh, non-local perceptions and describe them accurately, you begin to be open to other topics, too. Sure. And, other, and, and begin to question science, just like a lot of people are questioning quantum mechanics right now. You can see it every day online, someone with a lot of experience saying, well, how does it really work? What's the theory behind it? So, 
And that's all it takes. And you mentioned, you know, it's it's strange to think how can information get from that place over there to me with with nothing in between physical, you know, interacting to give me that information. But you think of like my phone and my internet hub or, you know, the Wi-Fi connection in my house, there's nothing between them sending the information yet here it is on my phone and there's data going back and forward and there's packet loss and data dropping out and you know, that, that, that's just another way it happens. You know, it's frequencies. And so why couldn't it happen from, you know, from a brain to, to another point or whatever? If it's all bouncing about in the air, then it's just, just another way of getting, getting information across. No, that's a really good point. I mean, we already accept this in our technology, right? We're having a conversation right now across a large distance. And it's almost like you're in the room with me. It's that clear, right? Yeah. And a hundred years ago, no one would have believed that. In a few hundred years before that, they would have thought you were practicing witchcraft. So it's, it's this very valid point. Is we, that, that sort of quantum reality, the way information moves you know, at the speed of light across large distances already exists. But for some reason, we feel that we need machines to do that, right? We need yeah. some physical machine to create that communication to connect to those quantum properties that allow for particles to share information instantaneously at a distance and all of the other sort of weird quantum properties, quantum tunneling, things like this that allow our electronics to work, that explain how they work. But for some reason, when it comes to us, we have a very limited idea of our abilities and capabilities. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, and I love a Marvel analogy, and it's like when you watch like Thor, and there's one one of the movies where Thor loses his hammer, and he tells his dad, "Well, I don't have my power anymore." And his dad tells him, "Well, the, the hammer was never the power. You're the source of the power. The hammer was just a way to harness it. You've got the power in you." And Thor realizes, "Ah, oh, wait a minute, I've had it in me all along, and that that's all it is. It's just a way to channel it." So, so yeah, I can I can totally yeah. understand that. It's a good analogy. Marvel explains yeah, uh, a, a, a range of things for me. So, no, it does because we can accept things in comic books, right? Yeah, and we can accept we can accept things when we believe it's fiction. But we've all had this conditioning from the time we're very young. I mean, it really starts at a very young age, doesn't it? Uh, to be told that what is real and what isn't real. I mean, a lot of young children have like imaginary friends and things like this. And experiences, and then they're told that that's just, you know, that was just your imagination, Johnny. That wasn't, you know, it wasn't real. And we hear this over and over again. And eventually, by the time we're adults, we, we, we're like really dulled down, aren't we, to not look at these things anymore. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of, it's a cultural conditioning process that teaches us that those things are real in fiction, but it's not true in reality. But then science comes along and technology and events things that seem would have seemed to people in the past like magic like this would have seemed like some sort of sorcery right we could we could have been burned at the stake andy for doing what we're doing right now in the past (laughs) so think so things change and eventually we begin to accept that magic is real 
and there's still cultures. You know, least, yeah, there's still cultures on the planet that would burn you at the stake, or you know, at least execute you for for doing what we are doing now as well. So you know, there's yes. right now in 2020, as, as we understand it, something you've touched on is you know this whole idea of resonance viewing and all these different phenomena. More and more, it seems to get tied into consciousness. What's your perception, or how would you explain consciousness to people? Yes, no, the consciousness is like the big question, isn't it? And uh, there's, a, I think, a bias here to believe that consciousness is sort of, uh, well, there's a couple aspects to it, but the consciousness is sort of a human thing, mainly. And I think what RV shows you is that everything is conscious, that consciousness is more like a field that pervades space and time rather than being confined to your brain. And, you know, we hear a lot about neuroscience these days. And if you read any science magazines, there's oh so much going on in neuroscience about identifying parts of the brain, what they do. And there's almost this belief that if we, you know, drill down, you know, in a sense to the smallest level, we'll find out what consciousness is like. It's somewhere in you and we'll find it in the brain somewhere. (laughs) And to this, so far, no one's found it in the brain. Um, it doesn't seem to, you know, you, you, you're aware of this because when you have feelings and thoughts and things, you're aware that you're having those feelings and thoughts. That's really sort of what separates you from a lot of other living things on the planet is this sort of awareness that you're feeling one way or another. You can kind of take a step back from it. So the question is, who's doing that? Who's taking the step back from your brain? So you have to be more than your brain, right? Uh, It's sort of, uh, you know, headlights don't illuminate themselves. They illuminate something that's in front of the car. They really can't see how they work. So there's always some aspect of it that's beyond the mechanistic model. So that's really what it suggests to us is that consciousness is non-local, whatever it is. And it may be so fundamental that it's almost hard to talk about because there's nowhere that it isn't. And if there's nowhere that it isn't, it's really hard to kind of pick it out from everything else. But it yeah. certainly raises a lot of questions whether it's not as local as it looks. And, and you know, science really is attached to this idea of locality. And uh, it, this shows us that there's a non-local component, just like quantum mechanics tells us, actually. It's not surprising, is it? No, I saw someone suggest on Twitter recently, and it was, I, I, I don't think it was original, and it may be something you've heard before, but it was the first time I'd heard it, that the brain potentially is a receiver of consciousness, and it's not where it's generated or where it's kept, but it's almost like, you know, if you want to think of Avatar, where something's been beamed into another mechanism, like a biological, well, you know, we're just radios receiving a signal from elsewhere, and you experience consciousness and whatever we perceive as reality through through the signal. And I just thought that was quite an interesting concept. Yeah, it's something more like that. Um, is uh, when I was a kid, really young kid, I used to build crystal radios. There's a store here in the states called Radio Shack. There was. <laughs> it's no longer around physically as a store. I think they still have a website. But I was really interested in electronics as a kid. And I would build these kits, you know, and shortwave radio and all this. Um, and this kit allowed you to build a crystal radio, which used a crystal to receive AM radio signals with no battery. And I was astounded about, you put the earpiece in, you'd hear the radio station, only the strongest in your area. And there it was with no battery. 
is incredible. And so it kind of shows us that there's this kind of non-local component to things. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of consciousness, it's more like we're receiving a signal around like a certain frequency. And when you're on the same, you know, kind of what we're talking about before resonance, when you're on the same frequency as other things, the information spontaneously flows just like it would in a crystal radio. I mean, that's the analogy I've always used to explain RV, just like a crystal radio. It didn't need a battery. The signal itself had enough energy to transmit and move around. Now, again, we're not talking about electromagnetic signals, kind of like radio, but I think the analogy really holds and quantum mechanics tells us that everything has a natural resonance to it, that everything has frequency. That's the basis of quantum mechanics going all the way back to the black body radiation experiments of Planck and Einstein, uh, you know, over a hundred years ago that led to the creation of quantum mechanics is that there's certain frequencies, but it's not continuous. It comes in these quantum packets. I mean, that's what created quantum mechanics is this, the notion of resonance to begin with. So, um, so yeah, it, consciousness is a, is a really important part of it, but let me flip it around for a second too, Andy, on the other way, look at it. RV also suggests that we're not as conscious as we think we are. And that's the really astounding part about it too, is that we're brought up to think that we're conscious and aware of what's going on. And guess what RV talks about? And this is really illustrated well in this book called The User Illusion by Tor Noratranders. The User Illusion. It's a book I found in, in the 90s, a long time ago. I think it was before RV. Uh, and it was about how we're not really as conscious as we think. In fact, what we consider to be conscious information, you know, our awareness right now of the room around us and things in our vicinity is a tiny fraction of a percent of all the information that's aware that we're actually aware of. And Ingo Swan was actually a big fan of this book too, as we found out later when he gave us a presentation in 2002 in Austin, Texas at the urban meeting, he brought up this book, the user illusion. I said, Hey, I know that book. I guess it's no coincidence. Is it? Uh, that book sh said that what we consider to be consciousness is about, I think on the order of 16 bits out of 40 million every second, something like that, a tiny fraction of a percent, a few thousandths of a percent of all the information. That's why RV really works is you're actually aware of a lot more than's in your consciousness. It's because of the idea of the limit subliminal, you know, this idea that, uh, what we consider to be our conscious awareness is a tiny fraction of reality. And that in itself is a really profound idea, right? Is that what we consider to be reality is just a tiny fraction of everything that's out there. And that's another big takeaway from RV is that we're not as conscious as we think we are because most of it's in another part of our awareness that some people call the subconscious or you could call the unconscious. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it, but the information is there but you're not, a, you're not aware that you have it. And that's what RV sort of does is it allows you to become a little more sensitive and look in different places in your awareness. So on one hand, yeah, consciousness is this non-local thing that pervades space-time. On another level, talking about our own personal consciousness, we're not as conscious as we think we are. It's such, There's much more. 
it's yeah. such a mind literally a mind-blowing subject that it, you you take it in isolation it's a really simple thing to talk about and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger to bring it crashing back down to reality something you touched on a little while ago sim was um the governments uh, and you talked about that do you think the us or other governments do still use resonance viewing uh, for any particular reasons I would be surprised if they didn't. And, and the reason is, let's just go back historically. Before the U.S. was doing it, the Soviet Union had very extensive programs in psychic research. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great book about it called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain uh, from you know a couple, 20 years ago or so. And we know that's how the U.S. sort of found out about it is the Soviets were doing it first and they were concerned that they would have you know there's going to be this sputnik moment where they developed this psychic espionage warfare you know the communist party the soviet union was going to get us with their psychics and they had extensive uh, programs going which led the u.s to do it too but not only uh, soviet union but china had extensive psychic training and uh, sort of programs to find the natural psychics in their population of a billion people at the time they they would scour the countryside for natural psychics kids that had natural psychic ability so it really was uh you know countries that the u.s at the time considered adversaries that they had this thing that they could weaponize that we had to have it too so in that context, I would be surprised since it really does work if somebody isn't using it in some way. Uh, it could have been outsourced now, privatized. I don't have any direct information that the U.S. government is still has an active program. I mean, I don't know about that. Everyone I've asked about it, this comes up a lot at the RB meetings and so forth. And the consensus seems to be they probably still do have it, but it's under a different name now and it, it could have been privatized in some way so that they're not doing it directly. They can say, we don't do it anymore. And, you know, some company does it for them. As with a lot of things in this topic. And I suppose that takes us on nicely to, there's more and more of a connection now between consciousness and UFOs, the UAP phenomenon. Um, What's your take on ETs? Uh, Do you think multidimensional, interdimensional, a mix? Have we got beings going from planet to planet? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? It's something, Andy. It's definitely something. And it's been around for a while. Uh, What this is, I don't think anyone totally knows or understands yet. But it's bigger than we can understand. And it's there. And it shows up. And is it, you know, a range of phenomena like you've just described? All, you know, answer E, all of the above. Yeah, uh, probably something like that. And I don't think that's a cop out. It's just that these objects and the experiences that people have around them, there's such an amount of variation and diversity in the UFO ET contact experiences that people have. Not all the time. Sometimes these craft seem to show up a couple of years later, the exact same craft in another part of the world, which, you know, makes you wonder what what is going on there over two different rural areas on the opposite side of the globe. Um, But going back to our discussion, you know, at the beginning about means and variances, it doesn't have a mean and it doesn't have variances. It's really challenging to study. Some of these craft might have characteristics that have an envelope 
you know, you could describe their flight characteristics, but I mean, just think about the range of experiences people have had ever since the 1890s, at least in this country, we had the airships, you know, Mm -hmm. and I visited some of these sites where the airships, uh, showed up uh there there were some in an area where i was out in dublin texas i was filming with the history channel for that uh for the the show that they uh they had me on recently with crop circles at you know stevensville texas ufo yeah incident yeah and uh well i got to talk to people in dublin uh, texas and there there had been airships seen there there had been some that came very low. They even got the newspaper articles from me from the 1890s. You know, before Aurora. It was before the Aurora, Texas incident. So it goes all the way back to that, to the present. And everything in between, you know, there's so much history that, you know, you cover on this podcast. And some of your guests have talked about such a huge topic that it just suggests to me that, well, you know, this reality that we think we're in, this mainstream reality, is a little bubble in this huge, you know, pond of reality. And it's almost so vast that it's, you can't quite wrap your mind around it. In fact, that's an understatement. (laughs) It's a lot of different subjects and they seem to blend together sometimes. Sometimes they're nuts and bolts craft. Uh, Some of the witnesses I've talked to, you know, it's been nuts and bolts stuff. And yet other times it seems more amorphous it seems to show up and then just disappear and then as some of your other guests have talked about in the show and some of the things you know i've studied many people are who you know look at these topics know about it sort of brings along with it other phenomena and they're kind of grouped together so to answer your question is you know et or multi-dimensional i mean it's probably all of that but more it's it's probably a bigger reality that we're just sort of we don't really have the ability to perceive it directly. We just have these incidents that pop through our reality, kind of like Flatland, you know, Edwin Abbott, that book from the 1870s, Flatland, where, you know, people live on a tabletop surface and they're two-dimensional and occasionally these three-dimensional objects come in. It's a question really for physics. And we haven't done a good job addressing it because physics has been stuck, you know, ever since the 1940s or 50s in a certain kind of interpretation of quantum mechanics. And it's been very challenging to really look at other interpretations of quantum mechanics that would allow for these phenomena to exist, right? Absolutely. I mean, if I was ever going to, and I'd like to think one one day I will, it's one of those things that you put off and put off because life gets in the way. Uh if if I ever wanted to practice resonance viewing and, you know, have targets and whatnot, and you've heard other people on different shows and interviews discuss that they've remote viewed targets on Mars or they've remote viewed targets on the moon or, you know, ET craft. Is that something you've got much experience with or how much stock would you put into that element of, of remote viewing or resonance viewing? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because it's certainly something that I've done a lot with my people that I've trained and and the groups I've worked with. And uh, those sorts of targets are very interesting. I mean, that's what got me interested in crop circles, just so we can mention that for a second. It was one of the targets that uh, Courtney Brown gave to our class back in 1996. I didn't even know what a crop circle was in 1996. When I got the target feedback on that picture, uh, I thought, what, what is this? 
I'd never seen a picture of a crop circle in 1996. That's how far away I was from these topics, Andy. I just came out of graduate school. No one ever talked about crop circles in graduate school. And here was this thing. I felt compelled to go over to the UK to get my target feedback because in the session, I had gotten a lot of really weird things that I couldn't really match up you know, to anything I understood. So I, I went with a guy named Ron Russell, who I met at the UFO conference in Denver in 1997. He said, hey, I'm giving crop circle tours. He gave us a presentation. Some of the weird things that happened around them. I said, wow, this is sort of interesting. Maybe it's kind of like RV. There's something going on that I wasn't told about in graduate school. So I went over. That's how it all started, going over to the crop circles. So the main thing about viewing these types of targets is it's important to get feedback. You can't always get feedback on a UFO type target. And this is why I would encourage everyone to take any RV work with UFOs just with a grain of salt. I'm not saying they're not accurate. You just don't know until you've got feedback. We've done a whole variety of UFO targets over the years. You know, some of the famous targets, Phoenix Lights and things like that. And sometimes when they're very good pictures and videos, you can view the objects and even put people inside the craft, have them walk around. And that's been kind of astounding too, because I've had viewers during the session, say something is looking back at me. What do I do? What do I do? So I just, I don't know, write it down. <laughs> you know, so people have felt that they've encountered these beings on the craft when they're, you know, they've been instructed to go inside the object and describe, just given a kind of a standard RV movement exercise. And so that's really interesting. We can't really verify it at the end of the day, but that doesn't mean it's not correct. It just means it's un unverifiable, right? Can't confirm. It's like what Ingo would say, can't confirm. You don't know. So it's good to do regular sort of, I'm saying regular, verifiable targets, ordinary targets, just so at the end you get your feedback on Mount Kilimanjaro, Eiffel Tower, famous celebrity event, battle, whatever you were viewing. Yeah. That way you can calibrate your viewing abilities with the target itself. But it's also fun just and kind of, a stretch of the imagination to view these more esoteric targets. At least that's how we call them. Uh, because at the end of the day, we can't confirm it either way. I've done those targets too, you know, targets on Mars and the moon. And sometimes you see very interesting stuff. And we're going to just have to put that as Stan Friedman would say in our gray basket. That's what Stanton would say when you brought up a topic during the question and answer session from one of his lectures. And he would He'd say, what about this, Dan? And he would say, you know, it's in my gray basket. I'm not sure. It could be real, but we can't confirm it. And that's how you are with these UFO targets with RV sessions. Uh, we know from the early days that Ingo did, she was involved in viewing sessions to demonstrate this for the brass at the Pentagon. I think there was one famous session where they had him viewing a Soviet submarine. And he said, you know, this disc just became, came between me and the submarine. Uh, very accurate viewers can view these things too and say that's what they're experiencing. Um, so it's, it's something that's really fun to do with RV and you just have to do it knowing that you won't get feedback at the end of the session the way you would with a kind of a standard target. So if you don't mind uh, humoring me for a moment, the reason I started this podcast is I would listen to interviews like this and the hosts would be good or bad and they would ask a lot of you know generic questions and stuff and it was always me thinking I would have asked this or I would have asked that so now I've got my own podcast I get to ask the questions yeah. what I would have been shouting at the podcast when you were talking there was ask Sim what he saw on Mars so in whatever form of detail would you divulge, you know, if you're, if you have used resonance viewing to look yeah. at Mars as a target, what sort of stuff came up? 
Yeah, so there were a whole bunch of different targets uh, that we were given at the Farsight Institute way back in the 90s there. They were different uh, aspects of Martian civilization uh, and the face on Mars. And uh, you go under the face on Mars and do you see anything? There are pyramids on Mars, things like that. And uh, I can just remember from my own sessions, they weren't anything... Uh, you know, super technological, at least going from my memory of it at the moment, they were just, this is my impression of Martian civilization and Mars in the past. It was something related to Earth. It was a different type of human, uh, a different frequency, uh, not extraterrestrial in the sense of something being really different, but something related to us but not, for, you know, not from Earth, if you know what I mean. Related mm-hmm. to us in some way, but not earthly. A different sort of homino- hominoid, hominid, excuse me. A different sort of quadruped, like a human, but different. With different uh, values and different, you know, ideas. So that's the feeling I got from those Martian targets. It wasn't, oh, wow, it's this, you know, with their spacecraft and this magic technology. It was more the feeling of exploring a civilization in the past that might have been technologically advanced compared to where we were in the past, but somehow related to us in some way, kind of like another uh, member of the human family. That was my feeling from viewing the Martian targets. Now, again, I can't verify that one way or another. That's just the vibe that comes from those targets that I remember doing maybe about uh, six or seven of them, six or seven targets like that. No, thanks. Uh, Do you know what? like you say the the view on et and what the phenomena might be has changed so much over the last couple of years let alone since the 90s and you touched on it before my next question was going to be on crop circles and yeah. that that standard you know aliens jumping in a flying saucer from mars coming to earth and creating a crop circle is a very 90s and 80s notion now i think um we've had the whole x files wave and all that kind of stuff has come and gone crop circles is often still seen as an older part of ufology but it still very much happens and there's a lot of pretty incredible videos i think just a couple of months ago there was one out in germany uh not too far from where um lieutenant tim mcmillan who i've had on the podcast um, right. not not far from where he stays but far enough that he couldn't get to it easily and um, that was pretty yeah. incredible as well what for you is happening when it comes to the crop circle phenomenon is it a mix of what it would seem to me of human and something else that, that's causing these yeah no great question great topic first i would just say to everyone you have to keep in mind in these topics that rather than jumping to an explanation, feeling confident, you know, what's going on. I find it healthier with all these topics to insist that I don't know what's going on and to go out and get the data and to research them with an open mind because you're guaranteed to find that it's something different than you thought it was. And that's always a good thing because that's progress, right? Your mind has expanded. It's going beyond what you thought it was. And it's true of crop circles too. These phenomena are beyond any one explanation, any one category. People on all sides of the aisles want it to be this, they want it to be that. And as you're saying, Andy, it's a blend. It's it's a blend like anything else in reality. It has different facets to it and different aspects. When we go back in history, not going back 100 years, even though they existed back then, Remember, there was that book by, I think it was, uh, was it Terry Andrews, The Secret History of Crop Circles? 
a really great book. Uh, it's not in print anymore, where he went back, you know, way back to look at the history of these patterns in grain crops. And they were there, going a long ways back. But even if we go back to the 70s and 80s, they are correlated with UFO landing sites. There's no doubt about it. I have spoken to witnesses, and there's great cases. I just, uh, there was one from one of Rich Hoffman's uh, lectures for SEU, you know, that group in the U.S., the Scientific Coalition for the Study of UFOs, I think that's what it is. And he brought up the Carrollton, Ohio case that he studied as a younger person in 1973 where something had landed and he went out to the farmer had took him out there and it literally had created a crop circle. I mean, a circle, literal circle, right? The center was burned and farther out the wheat had is according to what he said. And by the way, this, uh, this lecture, I put it up on my blog, new crystal mind because I thought it was such a good you know, lecture about UFOs from a year ago in Huntsville, Alabama. He described going out to this Carrollton site and the wheat being flattened. And he said at the very farthest level, it was puffed wheat. The heat of the object had puffed the wheat. And so there isn't any doubt that there are cases like that. There are many trace cases, landing cases, where the craft leave patterns in wheat. Now, I spoke to one witness here, Luis Vovez. Uh, she saw this in the 1970s uh, in uh, upper Washington state uh, where she was picking huckleberries with her brother. And she said this object that just kind of like that, you know, fluttering leaf pattern is kind of wobbling. It kind of came low over the meadow and flattened the meadow in a straight line for about 20 feet straight as it moved across the meadow. I said, did it bend the plants, Louise? And by the way, you can see this interview on the, uh, on my site, blackswanghosts.com. She's in the book, and I put up the video. You can, anyone can watch it. I said, Louise, did they bend the wheat? She goes, no, flat as a pancake. Now, what does that sound like, Andy? That's like crop circles, right? Flattened. So it, this wasn't a crop circle, but it was evidence of a craft, an anomalous vehicle, a UAP, as we call them now, flattening plants. And so there's many cases of that in the 70s. Now, 70s, 80s, but as we move towards the more recent era, people got involved. As I learned, having gone over to the UK since 1997, there were people that got involved in making these, and they really started out out of curiosity. They wondered if they could make them, and when they did, they found that they were better than they thought they were going to be, and they just started making bigger ones, and a lot of them were real sincere you know, researchers initially, or people that were just really curious. They weren't hoaxers. So, uh, they made more of them, and then we ended up in a situation where now, where a lot of them are man-made. But a big take-home point, and if you've watched my videos, Andy, I guess you already know this, but to those listening, the man-made ones have real active effects that are very hard to explain. Uh, very strange effects on cameras, batteries, electromagnetic uh, effects on our equipment that are very hard to explain. I've, I've heard this from camera crews with their professional cameras. I've seen it myself with groups I've taken out there. And um, it's just extremely strange. It has to do with balls of light and uh, these sort of so-called exotic vacuum objects. There's a great uh, YouTube channel that people should check out if they want to learn more about this line of research into balls of light and so forth. It's Bob Greenier's uh, Martin Fleischmann Memorial Project, named after Martin Fleischmann of, of cold fusion fame, right? Or infamy, as we should say, right? Uh, 
But uh, there's a lot of interesting phenomena around all crop circles, which going back to what I said a few minutes ago, would lead you to conclude that there's something about the shape and the frequency of crop circles that creates these effects independent of whether they're made from a craft, which again, really do exist and really do leave some of these behind, or it's made by a team of circle makers, you know, uh, who exist. And I've talked to these fellows, they're, you know, they're mostly guys. I've talked with them, I've hung out with them. I've made some circles with them. And, uh, we've made a whole bunch of our own circles. We've paid the farmer and we've gone out and made some, and we've seen a lot of these strange effects too. So it's a much more complex topic than people thought. That's, that's how I'd answer the question. No, something I was always interested in, especially as a, a child, like I was born in 1986. So as I got into the 90s and started getting interested in UFOs and aliens and ancient Egypt and all Loch Ness Monster, all that kind of stuff, crop circles i remember seeing really early on that there was a particular crop circle that had been created but even with the the bending of the wheat and you know surgical precision all the the stalks of the wheat the joint has like a little ball within it of a seed or a kernel and every single one of them had been like popped out which just yeah couldn't be done by human hands the way it had been done and it's and even for me the the very 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 good human made ones now you know it's interesting to hear about the effects that these still have but you can you still see the imperfections as to what some of the really really complex ones seem you know that just seem to appear out of nowhere you can still for me tell that difference no matter how good the human ones get that there's still that real mystery and aura but like you say on your channel it's fascinating to see there are effects still from humans creating these to see that you're you're maybe starting to play or dabble with something that does have a connection to something else yeah it definitely has a connection to something else and uh it's it's a great question of what that is uh, because my belief is you're tapping into some sort of natural superconductivity from plants. It's something that people haven't really looked at very much at all, if at all, anywhere, because you're getting this just rapid acceleration and generation of magnetism and electrical flow very briefly sometimes, but it's enough to knock out your camera or your camcorder it's enough to destroy electronics to melt electronics which is something you don't see anywhere else i mean i've talked to many farmers and uh, anyone who has will know that they don't find their tractors melting down very often in those crop circles but uh i mean in fields but in the crop circles you you can experience some pretty strange things that don't happen when you're on the beach or on vacation in the mountains normally and so it's shows us that it's connecting to another type of energy field uh, and another set of scientific principles that seems to create a juncture between quantum phenomena and our kind of macroscopic classical reality. There's a juncture going on because you're getting a lot more energy than you should from wheat, which is, you know, as Colin Andrews has pointed out many times, it is typically usually an insulator. And here it's acting like a conductor. So, uh, the connections between that and, you know, shapes and geometry and mathematics and frequency, all those good things really come up, pop up in a sense in crop circles. And that's what really makes them really interesting. I mean, it sort of suggests that if you get a precise enough shape in a large enough area in a thing like a grain crop, 
a kind of a template that it creates a juncture point to some other type of energy system or reality, almost like a portal in a sense. It, just kind of using that as a kind of an image. I, I, I'm not sure if it's literally like a portal that things are kind of popping in and out, like you'd see on you know a wormhole on Star Trek, but it feels like that a little bit because the phenomena around it are just not typical. And again, this is something I wouldn't have believed if I hadn't seen it for myself over many years. When I got there in 97, I was just listening to other people's stories, but then I began to see it on my own cameras, other people's cameras, and year after year, and um, it just shows to you that something is going on. And again, what this leads us, it, it's the same thing as these other topics we've been talking about. There's something going on, but we're not looking at reality. We're looking at a kind of a smallified version that we've been taught to believe is true. Because if you're in a crop circle and your camera goes bad, goes out, and it doesn't work for a couple of days, and you put it in the in your drawer and a couple months later you take it out again it's working you're just going to think well i don't know what that was it was just something but that's the outlier that we need to be looking at when it happens to hundreds of people that's the outlier it's no longer an outlier that's what we need to be looking at to try to make sense of what's going on but it's easy for people individually to push things away that is not easily explainable and that's what we all do but if we all joined our knowledge together of all the different types of experiences we have as some people have proposed recently with different sensor systems, like for UAPs, for example, we might see a very different picture of reality. And that's what I think has been going on with the crop circles. A lot of people have experienced this, but you know, they're just on their own. They go over and see it. They, you know, they, they push it aside. I've seen many people push it aside until I tell them, you know, a lot of people have experienced that before. And then they think, really, you know, maybe it wasn't just this or that. It really, there was some common explanation to why everyone's watches and cameras we're affected in a particular crop circle. I mean, it's something that happens over a period of like a day or two in a crop circle and it can stop. So if you put it all together, it's quite interesting. A, cu- a couple of the listeners um, over at Patreon, um, Shauna, who's listened to the podcast almost from day one, had asked, have you ever seen or RV'd a crop circle being created start to finish? Um, that was the first one I did in 97 at the Farsight Institute. That's really, it, it was the uh, windmill triple Julia set from 1996, if anyone remembers that particular formation. And uh, that was the viewing target. And that was the one where I just got a lot of weird energy going on, a lot of strange activity, just stuff that didn't fit in the ordinary boxes in your mind. Um, so that really would be the closest uh, that I had to viewing something you know i can't say it was necessarily from the beginning to the end but during a good rv session your monitor will move you around in time around the events and around the site so i did look at that from a couple different time periods um but that would be the closest i would say to have viewing one from you know beginning to end uh once i started going over there i wasn't viewing them as much um because more I was like walking around and exploring them. And then of course, around 2000, we met some of the circle makers who kind of gave us a dare. They said, Hey, you know, do you want to see us first? It was in the daytime. Uh, that was the one I talked about with Matt Williamson's group for, it was for an advertisement. They, we didn't even think they could do that, but they were, you know, they were pretty good at that. It was obviously in the daytime with a lot of light, but uh, then seeing some of them done at night, that was interesting because 
there were experiences that the circle makers had that really start becoming quote unquote paranormal. I mean, seeing things that you wouldn't normally see there. Even some of the circle makers reporting craft coming over the circles while they're making them. Not huge ones, small ones. Uh, this is before drones and things. Uh, dark objects, things that seem to be doing surveillance. It's interesting. It just becomes rather complex. And you, again, just like all these topics, it just, they're paradigm busters. And at the end of the day, Andy, I think we should all be happy that things bust our own paradigms, even ours. Those of us who consider ourselves researchers and think that we have a more informed view than the rest of society, we need our own paradigms busted too, just because we need to grow. We can't stay stuck in a rut. And we can get stuck in a rut. There are a lot of people that I've found over the years that are very rigid about their ideas about crop circles. I was one of them. <laughs> I was one of them at the beginning that said, no, human could do this. And I had all the arguments why humans couldn't do this, but they could do at least some of them. So, Yeah, totally. And life would be a very boring you know, life if, if, if that's what it was. We got all our questions answered and we moved yeah. on because even people have asked me on this podcast that that aren't necessarily fans of the, or believers in the subject or topic that, well, if, if we find out that aliens exist next week, then that's your podcast finished. And I'm like, well, no, for me, that's when the questions start because there's just so much more that you'd want to know. And I think people are surprised at that because it's not just a case of are there aliens? Yes or no. Are there UFOs? Yes or no. It's There's a whole plethora of other questions that come out when it, you know, remote viewing crop circles how do they all intertwine and interlink other connections and that that's always amazed me um, i want to ask another question sim on on the crop circles from one of the patrons dustin he asked a really interesting one are, are there sounds emitted from crop circles after they are created and can these be recorded and used during resonance viewing to see uaps that's interesting uh, there was that trilling sound that people heard over the years. You remember? Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very high frequency that people recorded. I remember hearing this. Uh, I never heard it myself directly. I just heard recordings of it. Uh, David Kingston, the, the researcher, a very interesting fellow who used to be at the Crop Circle meetings. He, he passed away a number of years ago, too. Uh, he had actually worked. You know, this is so, so fascinating, Andy. He had worked, was it at Christmas Island or some British territory in the South Pacific, monitoring UFOs. He told us, you know, before Nick Pope, there were other people doing this. And David Kingston was one of them, officially worked for the military monitoring UFO sightings around the missile installations out there. Hello. Uh, so he, he became interested in crop circles, the UFO connection, and uh, he would play that trilling sound for us. I think I still have a copy of it somewhere. Um, I haven't heard it myself, but that's a good idea. You could play it during an RV session. I mean, this is the thing. We need to be experimenting with all these techniques. Don't let anyone else tell you what is going on here. You have to try your own experiments. I, I'm totally serious about this. None of us have a clue of what's really going on here. And it's because we won't look at the data and the data has been withheld from us. Sure, it's true. But even when we have the data, sometimes we're blinded by our own belief systems. We won't have an open mind. So the thing is, folks, is when you encounter these anomalies, don't just push it away, don't file it away in the drawer and just say, oh, someone else, someone else will explain it someday. You need to pursue it because it's reality giving you a little clue that it isn't the way you were taught it was. And this is the way it is with the trilling sound. 
and with all these other phenomena, if you put all these clues together, you'll end up with a different picture of reality. And uh, I'd like to believe that that's what I do every day. This is what my training led me to, to believe. And I think it's a good thing from academics is you don't ignore things that are not consistent with your belief system. You have it all out on the table and you spend your time looking at the whole thing, whatever your specialty is or whatever topics you want to look at. You don't throw out the data that doesn't fit your viewpoint. You gather it up. It could take years. It could take decades. It's taking decades to figure out this UFO situation, isn't it? Decades. Uh, but we'll figure it out. That's what makes it fun. Is Every day could be the day that you get a new piece of information that makes the whole thing make sense. You don't know what that day is going to be. It could be any day coming up now. You're going to see something personally. You're going to witness something Reality is showing something to all of us. We're the ones that are not looking at it because we're content with the ordinary picture of reality that society has taught us. But as we've seen, there's a lot more going on. And perhaps the government didn't want us to look at this. They thought there was going to be panic. Okay, maybe there was in the 1950s or 60s. I don't know. I was just a kid in the 60s. I don't know if we'd have War of the Worlds. But obviously, someone's been collecting all this data, and they have been sharing it with us, have they? <laughs> And but we all, have the internet now. We can all share it. We can listen to your podcast here, other podcasts. We can put it all together. I think it's very exciting, Andy. You, very you've, you've set up the segue to my last question before we get into the listener questions and quick fire round to finish off really, really nicely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of your recent tweets, uh, I was going to ask you how you see the next few years playing out, and you set it up in a tweet where you said, fossilized life on a meteor, uh, life on Venus, ETs are here, they are your neighbor. Is that the way you really can see things going? Yes. I was having a little bit of fun with that tweet, but, you know, sure, yeah. that came out of this, you know, the, this, this exobiology. Remember the meteorites and this announcement from Russia, mm -hmm. Russian scientists on September 15th that they had been studying for 20 years. This is what I'm talking about. The data has already been out there. For 20 years, they've been looking at these biological fossils on meteorites, just like Richard Hoover did who I've interviewed and I, I, you know, I had a video about him. I, I talked about him, the NASA scientists that quit because they didn't want him to talk about it. Uh, life on me fossilized life on meteorites. So that's how it starts. It has to do with our own comfort levels of absorbing new information without flipping out. I mean, and that's what your conscious mind is there to do at the end of the day. Anyway, isn't it? Is to try to kind of fit what you see into what you believe to be true. And it does this, and you push things away. You push away data, you push away events, you push away situations that don't fit that. But eventually, societies can't do that anymore. So there's going to be a gradual, initially a gradual wave of new data and new information that comes forward that's just going to seem like it's on the periphery, I would imagine. Meteorites, you know, phosphine gases in Venus's atmosphere, things like that that suggest that life exists out there and gradually the news cycles will pick up on this and they'll it'll get closer and closer and eventually it'll they'll say hey maybe some of that life's connected to what we're seeing here in the atmosphere something that no you know astronomers willing to admit yet <laughs> it's got or any people the SETI project it's out there somewhere right not here but maybe it's here that's it has to happen that way andy because that's the way our own fear levels work our own consciousness you talked about any seen anything scary during an rv session but 
what we're about to encounter could be scary for some people if they haven't listened to your podcast, for example, or watch my YouTube videos or other people's YouTube channels. People are talking about this. Uh, people from the government are coming forward to us right now who've worked for the government very recently and said, this is a real topic. Your government's concerned about this, but they're not telling you. What that suggests to me is that there are going to be these uh, moments of real uh, breakthroughs of information. Some people might not see it as a breakthrough. Some people might see it as chaos, but people who've listened to this podcast and other similar podcasts and who've been researching the subject won't be surprised when these things are deemed to be true. I was told that NASA has a timetable for releasing this, this information. That's what they told Richard Hoover, according to what he told me, is that they had their own timetable and he was getting ahead of it. <laughs> they have a, a chronology of releasing this information, this information. I imagine they think they're doing it for our own benefit. I don't know what their motivations are exactly, but they seem to be a little behind the curve. But yeah, I think that's how it's going to happen. And eventually someone will come forward with information that they're actually uh, your neighbor or you're here, they're here, they're around you and you just haven't seen them the whole time. Something like that. I, I can't see it working out any other way because if this is what reality is, well, let me preface that by saying in science, there's this idea, which I think is largely true, that no one ever discovers anything in technology that nature hadn't already invented somewhere right? If you yeah. look somewhere, nature was already doing it and we created it technologically. I mean, even plants have a way of uh, keeping uh, photons in a macroscopic state to get the right frequency that they want in a superposition, right? Kind of a many worlds kind of way of looking at the way plants deal with reality and then kind of getting the frequency they want. So plants are, are using quantum mechanics to generate energy. So if that's true that nature was already doing it, then with this whole ET question they would already have to be here right now i'm talking literally right now in your vicinity you don't see them yet either because your conscious mind's not comfortable with it or for a number of reasons it's got to be there right now and the change will be in us i'm serious the change will be our ability as a society to collectively assimilate this information without everyone flipping out that's how it's going to come down in my view I love that answer. Uh, we've got a lot of listener questions, so let's get into those, Sim, before we move on sure. to the quick fire round to finish off. Um, my yeah. regular co-host, Dan, on many of the spin-off shows that I do, um, you've already answered one of his questions around uh, anomalous readings from human-made uh, and man-made crop circles, so that's great. He also wanted to know, do you think there are any connections between the phenomenon and creativity, and he put, i.e., where ideas come from? Yeah, that's a, no, that's a great question, and that's a Big question. And this is something that uh, I work on every day because I actually, uh, I teach classes in this on how, to, how people can tap into their own uh, creativity using some of these principles. I mean, I call it human fusion, but I'm not trying to promote that. I'm just saying that is where this all leads. It's not just in paranormal phenomena, as we call it, anomalous phenomena, UAPs, things that we consider to be different. What aspects of ourselves have we considered to be so different that we're not using our full potential as humans? I mean, don't you think that's where this all comes down to? And this is why we're kind of in a delay mode with recognizing these phenomena is we can't recognize stuff that's out there until we recognize it in ourselves first. You, you got to have the equipment before you can perceive the frequencies, right? And getting involved in this, these phenomena 
is intrinsically related to creativity. This is what Ingo Swan said a long time ago at one of the conferences when I asked him, uh, Ingo, you know, at the end of his lectures, it was in uh, North Vegas. And he said, uh, I said, who's a good viewer? And he said, artists and musicians, because they're already open to their own creativity. So I'm really glad that the, the listener asked this question because there is no way we can engage these phenomena unless we develop ourselves too to get up to that frequency, right? We have to be at the frequency of those phenomena. The reason we don't perceive them on a more frequent basis is the frequency is probably a lot higher than ours, you know, technically higher. And so we probably can't perceive it until we kind of get our frequency a little higher. And by that, I mean, you know, the things that you believe, your ideas, all of that kind of creates a frequency. You could probably measure it if you had a tricorder from Star Trek. I'm not talking metaphysically here. I'm talking, we have a frequency. I mean, literally. And if the frequency of those things is too different from our frequency, we're not going to match up. Right now, you and I are able to have a conversation because we are on the same frequency. doesn't matter whether it's a radio or whether it's going through the internet we're on the same frequencies to be able to communicate Wi-Fi and all that. So it does have to do with our creativity. And when you get involved in these subjects, let me just say one more thing, really uh, interesting to answer that question. There are many people I've been around who've taken my classes or I've just been around them during their training who spontaneously started to become artists uh, after learning resonant viewing. They just started drawing one day or one evening it just kind of came from nowhere and all of a sudden they found that they were artists and they had never known it you sort of see what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. they hadn't been using their full uh brain power their full awareness their full consciousness perhaps and somehow it opened a door and they discovered their own abilities that they didn't have and i've seen this many many times i know people that have developed spontaneous artistic ability from learning rv yeah to go to the question of creativity that's the most important thing here it's not just developing a technology that's more sensitive, that it can detect these frequencies and see these objects up there in our atmosphere and our oceans. That's important too. But we have to upgrade our own frequencies, our own inter- abilities, our own software that makes us work as humans, right? Absolutely, to yeah. To receive a bigger sense of reality because as we were saying a few minutes ago, it's all out there already. We're the ones that have the limitations to perceiving it. For whatever reason, uh, it may not be something you want to perceive, which is fine. But for those of us that are interested to look at these phenomena without being ridiculed and attacked and castigated by the rest of society, uh, we need to become more sensitive in, in a lot of ways. And we need to become more of who we are to see more of what's out there. That's really what I ultimately believe. Unless we're fully present and doing what we do each of us in our own each of us has different abilities and skills and and um, things that we're interested in unless we're doing that a hundred percent we're not going to be there for those phenomena because they're you know they're out there but they're at kind of a different level different frequency if we're not here completely we won't perceive them so that's a really great question and i think it has a lot to do with creativity uh, Dan's next question is one he likes to ask all the guests um, and it's far yeah. simpler for you to answer it's are you a cat or a dog person I I, uh, I guess I would say I'm kind of a whale person <laughs> Listen, I've had both cats and dogs I cats are great cats are at their own frequency they're in their own kind of world dogs are no 
you gotta love dogs. Dogs are great too. I mean, they're just wonderful companions. They're both great. So I've I've had both dogs. I've had both cats, and I'd say, I, I all of the animal uh, all of the animal species are fantastic. They each have their own way of you know showing you something. So I thought by going whale, you were going with the outlier rather than the mean uh, data that cats well, or dogs would usually be. Some, so, well, Andy, some people do think that whales are actually extraterrestrials. <laughs> Uh, do you know what yeah, i've had a conversation off air similar to that recently so yeah I'll, I'll say no more at the minute but yeah i've um That's, i've had a similar you conversation good, you have a good spin on it too it's also the outlier so yeah yes. yeah uh-huh, yeah there's, there's there's something there that i'll talk about down the line i'm sure um the next question so we had Stephen. he asked have you ever tried to use re- resonance viewing to check for life on exoplanets yeah no we've done this occasionally and uh I haven't done it just like looking for bacteria or something. And again, it goes back to the question. I think it was Steve, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, without feedback, you don't really know. An RV takes a lot of energy. I mean, to sit down and do a session for an hour, it's going to take something out of you. It's a lot of, uh, it's not focused. It's learning to uh, stop your conscious mind from interfering with your flow of perception for an hour, two hours, whatever, how long you do the session, even 15 minutes. It takes some real energy. So um, the reason you just don't go about viewing everything is at the end of the day, Andy and Steve, if you can't get feedback, you don't really know what you did. Now, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just, again, it's an Ingo can't confirm. And there's only so many of those can't confirm targets you can do before you feel like um, if you don't really know, then there's no resolution. And it doesn't quite satisfy. Now, when you're looking for treasure and things like this buried treasure, I mean, there are people that do this and are successful at it. And that's feedback. You found what you were looking for. And that's fantastic. But with these other ones, I prefer to research those targets by just reading a lot of science magazines every day, uh, just uh, to gather as much information. Again, I'm just going to say, I think a lot of the information is already out there. It's incumbent upon those of us who research these topics don't quit, but you know, it's like Einstein said, be stubborn. Really seriously, folks, be stubborn. You've got the data. We've got the data. Stick with it and don't give any ground here. It's the only way we're going to make progress. That's what Einstein told us to do. We're going to do stick with it because no, listen, nobody believes new things throughout the history of science or history of society. Nobody ever believes anything new for like a hundred years. We don't want to wait that long. You got you to gotta really stick to it. And so that's where you put your energy more into than unverifiable targets. Uh, you mentioned they are being stubborn. The next question from Craig is, have you ever used re- uh, resonance viewing to look forward to the US election results? We have done that sometimes. Uh, in the past, we've used it with sports games. And let's be honest. There's a technique that does it week by week. Uh, with it's called ARV. I'll be it's called associative RV, and you just take two targets and you just view which one you're going to be shown at a later date, and you assign them to the targets ahead of time. You have someone else help you, or you can do it by yourself. Greg Kalogic, I think his name is, uh, did this by himself and was very successful just using it with the futures market, uh, with uh, stock options and things like this. Um, uh, he made quite a bit of money, but he said it wasn't enough to make it worth the 13-year project, but it showed that RV really worked. You got like 67% hit rate. So you can use it for these binary events. And, I, you know, we have done it in the past. I can't remember. Sometimes it's, you know, way far out. 
So I guess that would, I guess your question, the question would be who's going to win, right? The U S election. We should yeah. Do it. yeah. And then we'd get feedback. It's not that far away. It's about two months away. Right. Yep. I mean, as we recall this, the, the, ele- the debate was just last night. Um, so yeah, the first debate, yeah, if you're listening. Yes, to this, no, yeah. I did watch, I watched that Andy and you know, that just reminded me so much of these topics. Because how many times have we had good data and you got someone who's loud and obnoxious about it and does these personal attacks, ad hominem attacks? You know, the the techniques that Trump used last night, he did it a lot more than Biden was ad hominem attacks, right? Mm -hmm. And isn't this the technique that the government has used against UFO witnesses for so long is you don't talk about the data. You just attack the person and you find something in their history or something, right? That's what I'm all I'm saying is about the debates. That's what it reminded me of. Don't talk about the facts, just attack something personal and avoid dealing with the issues. That's also, how I, uh, yeah, and it's also like the whole thing, you know, the, the, I hate the term fake news, right? Because it's, it's nonsense. Um, but the idea that you, you've got all these UFO videos online, of which most of them are clearly nonsense, however, of all the ones that have been debunked or people largely believe aren't real. There's there's a good chance there's maybe one out there or two that are actually genuine, but in amongst all the nonsense, just get lost. Um, and it was someone was asking me this on Twitter just the other day, and I was like, yeah, there's probably a couple out there that whether you know the, the famous skinny Bob footage or there's the the viral um, alien that's talking about it's it's us from the future and he's came back and it's subtitled and quite professionally done. Again, I would it's clearly it's clearly been made but it looks really professional and there's no doubt there's something potentially out there that's that's real or genuine footage or a picture but all you have to do if you're a government is throw a lot of rubbish out there amongst it and it just gets lost in the ether because it just all becomes nonsense and right that's true uh, that is definitely true we've had a lot of that but keep in mind the other way of looking at it is that that the, the disinformation eventually conditions people to be open to the truth mm. it, can work that way too. In other words, if you keep putting uh, aliens holding hands with President Clinton on the cover of the National Enquirer, one of our tabloids here, yeah, eventually it doesn't seem as strange when you really find out that something like that happened. So it actually can go both ways. It can confuse what the truth is, but it can also make people less afraid of it just because they can laugh at it for a while. I mean, there's uh, there's a multiple ways to see it. It's not necessarily all I'm saying is it's not necessarily a bad thing just because it's a representation, right? Sure. It, it uh, could get people open to the real thing. Uh, Breakwater on Twitter, you answered the question already around crop circles and investigations are some of the best ones. So thank you for that question. Um, Concept on Twitter was asking, do you think there is any link between neuroplasticity and resonance viewing? Yeah, definitely. Uh, neuroplasticity is very a very important topic because our brains literally change uh, to uh, the things that we're exposed to over time and the way we interpret what they are. And uh, part of resonant viewing is getting the left and the right hemispheres of our brain communicating a little bit through the corpus callosum, right? This bridge between the two hemispheres of the brain. And uh, they always don't always do a good job of that. So there is this sort of, we hear a lot about this 
from neuroscience these days, but it really is true. There's this topic called long-term potentiation of your neurons. And it's things that get repeated and, you know, the same neurons that fire together, wire together. Heard that one. It's the idea that there, our brain literally changes to be able to process these phenomena more, the more we're exposed to them and the more we engage them in a, uh, you know, in a, in a sincere way. So yeah, neuro, over time, your brain does change with RV to, I would say, even become a, a little more sensitive to subtle things that you perceive that maybe in the past you would have just pushed away and brushed aside. Now you're willing to stop and look at it a little more. And when you start stopping and looking at those gut feelings a little more, you start doing that with a lot of other things. And that, that is literally reflected in the change in how the brain works, definitely. Great question. Good answer. Um, two more. Uh, Shauna has asked, does Dr. Hine uh, feel he's ever interacted with ETs on Earth? And if so, how often? You know, early on, uh, before I started teaching RV, I actually, you know, once I had done the RV training at Farsight, I, I was thinking I was just going to go back to doing ordinary things. I actually hadn't planned to continue with it formally. I mean, it was interesting and I would maybe have some fun with it. I did have this, you know, experience, this encounter. Maybe it was a dream. Maybe it wasn't. But all I know was I had a conversation in a waking state. I didn't feel like I was totally asleep, but I didn't feel like it was totally awake either. Kind of in between, like you might feel like four or 5 a.m. in the morning and start mm -hmm. to wake up. Where I had this long conversation with some entity that presented themselves as an ET that gave me instructions about how to set up a, an RV business. I mean, they showed me maps, <laughs> all sorts of ideas. It was a very uh, direct conversation about the benefits of teaching this to people. And I actually did it. It, it was such a strong, you know, quote unquote dream. It actually led me to create the, you know, Mount Baldy Institute, which has been around now for, geez, 23 years. So that was an encounter perhaps with some other sorts, some other types of beings, you know, in a dream type state. Of course, that's when it would sort of happen. When we're awake, again, our conscious mind pushes things away that don't fit our ordinary sense. Even people like us who research these things, it's, it's just too out of the ordinary. And perhaps that was some sort of real communication with the beings of that type to, you know, exchange some information. But that's what it felt like, and that's all I can say about it. And last question from Andrew. Uh, Andrew, I can't. My name's Andrew, and I can't even say it with a Scottish accent. So, last question from Andy: um, Have you ever been tasked with through resonance viewing or remote viewing other dimensions? Um, other dimensions. Yeah, there were. Well, there were other types of targets over the years that uh, would move in that direction. Um, Various types of extraterrestrial targets could feel like that. Uh, you know, there's this idea that there are other, you know, other parallel realities to ours. We didn't even really get into that today, but that, that's a whole other topic because it's something that 
I spend time on every day looking at it. The, the yeah. Many worlds, theories, many interacting worlds, all of that. And sometimes you do view targets that feel like it's different. And all you can go, go by is the feeling is very different. Again, at the end of the day, you don't have any feedback to really know what you were getting. But the feeling was, uh, just for example, let's say you're viewing a individual that is now deceased. And you move forward into the timeline past the time when they're alive to keep communicating with them at a future time. And the communication continues. Uh, that would sort of be another dimension. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you're viewing people that are already deceased and you feel like some sort of communication happens, there are techniques that you can do in some of the phases to kind of create communications to some degree. It's not a channeling technique by any means, but, Sometimes that information does come through. And to extent you're dealing with people that are not physically here anymore, but you feel like you're communicating with them would be, I would say that'd be my definition of communicating with another dimension, experiencing one or interacting with one. That's great. And thank you, everyone who sent in questions. There was more sent in, which were either similar to what I've, I've asked on the show, or it's been answered within the body of the interview as well. And, and like uh, Simeon has said, there is a lot of topics I wanted to cover that I've either touched on, skipped over, or just left off for this, because I, w- I would love to speak to Sim again at another time where we can go another couple of hours uh, in the future. Um, I've got the quick fire round just to go over with you, Sim, and then we can kind of wrap up the, the podcast if you're good with that. Sure. So awesome. Quick fire. You can say as little or as much as you like on each each one, but it's just some of the topics that we've not necessarily managed to get to within the body of the interview. So the first one would be your thoughts on To The Stars Academy. Yeah, well, they certainly uh, done a lot to get our interest in the topic going. Without them, we wouldn't have Congress taking it seriously. They brought it to the news. I certainly don't agree looking at things in terms of a threat that necessarily don't understand, but uh, maybe that's not the way they really see it. Maybe it's just to, you know, get interest from the government to take this issue seriously. So they're certainly an important player on the stage and they've done a lot to move the the field forward. No, that's great. Uh, Ingo Swan would be the next one. Well, I was lucky enough to meet Ingo at conferences and even to visit him about a week before he passed on. Uh, Certainly, you know, a really amazing person that opened our eyes to these topics. He was the ultimate stubborn person. (laughs) Going back to that Einstein quote, he would not give in and he would not quit until Russell (laughs) Targ and Al Putoff let him try out his coordinate system and his other ways of doing viewing. So without Ingo, uh, we wouldn't be as far along as we are now with a lot of uh, RV and, and some of these other topics. Yeah, it was certainly someone who, when you think about thinking outside the box, he was outside the box and thinking outside of that box as well. So uh, definitely right. someone who was a huge part of that this whole subject. Um, yeah. For you, would you go with UFO or UAP? You know, it's fine to change the names of things because if you call it UAP, it doesn't have the baggage maybe that UFOs do, but we don't want to leave UFOs behind either. I mean, we've had a hundred years of this weird and freaky phenomena that we called UFOs. So 
you want to call them UAPs, because that's, again, calling it like remote viewing, if it's more acceptable to the mainstream media and the government to refer to it that way, then that's obviously okay, because they feel like, oh, it's a you know, politically correct to talk about this topic now. So maybe that's what we need to bring it more into the mainstream. The next one is someone who has a, a massive say in both To The Stars Academy, uh, to the Stars Academy and uh, Residence Viewing. It would be Hal Putov. Yeah, I mean, Hal, the fascinating thing about Hal, we knew him as someone involved in remote viewing research. He was a laser physicist like Russell Targ. He got interested in the subject. He got Ingo to come out to California. Um, and we all knew him as this person who, you know, apart from studying other topics in physics, uh, kind of like exotic vacuum objects and ball lightning, the Casimir effect, these other interesting quantum phenomena. We knew him in RV, but it was quite a shock when he told us in 2018 at the Irva SSE conference that he had also been studying UFOs this whole time, <laughs> too, for the government. <laughs> so there's still probably a lot about how that we don't know, but he's certainly been a very important player to bring this out to the public and to kind of be this go-between, I guess, between the government and the rest of us to tell us what they've really been looking at. The next one would be Antarctica as a place of interest. Yeah, I, it's not something I really know a huge amount about. Um, perhaps we'll uncover what's ever going on there. I just hear the same thing that the rest of you hear, so I don't really have any special information about Antarctica apart from these ideas that you know we've been exposed to that perhaps there's more going on there than we know about. Certainly. And the last one I'd like to finish off with all my guests is disclosure. What are your thoughts? What is disclosure? Well, it's obviously it's the topic of the day and uh, it's coming at us. But again, the main thing I would reinforce is that it's our own inner disclosure that has to accompany the outer disclosure. That's my personal bent on all this. You can only go so far on the outside as you're willing to go on the inside because any new information paradigm change demands things of you too, right? It's not a free ride. It demands that you change and you step up to play a bigger role. So uh, you need to think about in terms of your own development to match the disclosure on the outside. I think the pace of disclosure will go as fast as we're comfortable with it. And those of us that are involved in this research uh, need to be constantly, you know, stepping up our game. And personally, on a creative level, like your listener asked before, to be fully there, to be fully present, and to withhold judgment, but to be looking at new information, to see this in the biggest possible way rather than fitting it in to a pre-existing box. Great answer as well. Um, listen, Sim, thank you very much for your time. Can you just let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you? And of course, something I've not spoke about as much as I would have liked on this show is also how they can uh, look at resonance viewing themselves. If they want to get involved in the Mount Baldy Institute, you can give them some details on that too. Oh yeah. I have a, uh, you know, like a free mini seven part virtual viewing class. I just call it virtual viewing. It's online. It's resonant viewing training. You can do some of my free videos 
at virtualviewing.org. Uh, feel free to go there and look for the free mini class. Uh, my books are Opening Minds and Black Swan Ghosts, most recently, about the witnesses that I've interviewed. Um, also a book, Planetary Intelligence, you know, about connecting to some of these bigger frequencies, these other sorts of uh, phenomena that we've talked about that we see around us, but we're not paying attention to. And uh, uh, YouTube, you can go to YouTube, my YouTube channel. And New Crystal Mind is my blog where I put updates. So I'm, I'm happy to correspond with any of you. Feel free to ask your questions. I don't have all the answers to a lot of this, but it's always fun to bring up the right questions and to kind of uh, just see what's on people's minds. I really appreciate the questions. A lot of great questions from your uh, listeners. So uh, it's are, always the questions are always more important than the answers. So yeah. keep asking good questions. You are yeah. someone so who definitely you generated a lot of interest. In, so thank you and look forward to speaking to you again. Okay, Andy, take care. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you yes. again. Bye. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer. More like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk. Like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window. And when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass. But I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. How could have been any better? I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. I'm like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I just because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they'd be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jay?